This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, today we remember and celebrate the life, words, and wisdom of Martin Luther King, a man who inspired all Americans, black and white. I remember his words when he spoke them over 50 years ago on the Washington Mall, and, uh, and the words still make my spine tingle when I uh, remember them. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, that's not very good. Uh, way of phrasing it. Uh, Dr. King was much more powerful than that, of course, but those words are very powerful words. And uh, so today I'm conversing about them with Gerard Robinson, the director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity at the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. And Gerard has been uh, a friend of Education Next uh, for many years. Uh, previously, he served as the Secretary of Education for the state of Virginia and also for the state of Florida. Gerard, uh, Martin Luther King's dream that young people be judged by their character, not by their skin color, has yet to be accomplished, but how far down that road have we traveled, would you say? Well, I think we've traveled a long way since he delivered that speech. You think about the fact that when he stood under the shadow of Abraham Lincoln, that we would actually have Barack Obama from Abraham Lincoln State become the first African-American president, who would actually have known at that time that we would have African-Americans who were not only superintendents, but mayors, leaders, of, um, CEOs of major corporations, both public and private. So we've made great strides, but we still have many roads to go. When you look at black achievements on the National Assessment for Educational Progress, uh, not only from last year, but you look from 1970 forward, uh, African-American students have not done exceptionally well in math or science or English. Some success stories well, you see, out of Well, you see, uh, Gerard, I think you see some real progress when you look at kids at age 9, some progress at age 13. It's by the time they get to 17 that you don't see these early gains translating into something that can be taken away as they leave high school. Well, what do you think are some of the reasons for that? When I look at the number of students who graduate with a high school diploma and are in need of remediation at the post-secondary level, even though we promised them, their parents, the taxpayers, that they would be college ready, uh, that's a problem. I think there's two reasons. Uh, number one, what students they master in elementary and middle school uh, has yet to translate over to high school in part because I think there's a gap between expectations of the curriculum and actually what we provide, so that's part one. And part two, I think we still don't do a great job of accepting the fact that not every single kid is going to go directly to college after school. And so I think if we do a better job of preparing students earlier from careers, that can be an impetus to inspire thoughts about being a better student for a job, not just to go to college. Well, I know that you're working hard to open up the doors of opportunity once students leave high school because you're uh, working very closely with the Thurgood uh, Marshall College Fund, 
which really focuses on, on getting uh, uh, students uh, uh, who come from uh, minority backgrounds into college. Um, what exactly is the work that you're doing as part of the initiative that you have just undertaken? The Center for Advancing Opportunities is created through a partnership between the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, the Charles Koch Foundation, and the Charles Koch Institute. And the goal is really to work with historical black colleges and others to create evidence-based uh, research to inform how we actually think, think more smartly about education reform, criminal justice, and entrepreneurship. We know that in many fragile communities in the country, people have a really tough time. And for us, a fragile community would be someone who lives in a zip code where there's a high crime rate, high unemployment, but low access to great educational opportunities and low expectations or opportunities for social mobility. So what I'm doing, in fact, is working to support research, but also working with lawmakers and advocates, in fact, to help all people. And so the CAO's initiative isn't only for African Americans, it's for whites, Native Americans, Asians, and others. Uh, because the goal really is people in fragile communities and fragility knows no color. Well, that's a very much in the spirit of Martin Luther King, who wanted to transcend the uh, usual classifications into broader uh, categories that had meaning to all Americans. Uh, so what are you doing on the ground to sort of uh, move the needle on this? February 5th and 6th in Washington, D.C., we're going to host our first State of Opportunity in America Summit. It's an invitation-only summit for about 200 people. The vast majority will be scholars from HBCUs, non-HBCUs, but we also have advocates, think tank uh, personnel, and others who are going to come and have an opportunity to look at data that's going to come from Gallup. So one of the great things that come, uh, comes from the partnership we have with the Marshall College Fund is relationship with Gallup. And Gallup was able to identify, uh, actually gain information from 6,200 people in 49 states and the District of Columbia. And they focused on education. Uh, some of the questions were very similar to what you and your team do with Education Next in your annual polling on the state of education. I can tell you uh, from, you know, one uh, point. Are these interviews, uh, just a minute, Gerard, just to get a, a picture of, of the Gallup poll here, are these with the cross-section of the population? Or are they with focused in on the fragile communities? Focused primarily on fragile communities. And, again, people in zip codes where there's low income, high crime, low access to schools, and low access to social mobility. You know, most of the people who live uh, in these areas, make less than sixty thousand dollars a year, and a number of them have never completed. So it's a, it's really the fragile community, not per se just a cross section as we traditionally look at it. Well, that's a very interesting, uh, innovative poll. So, what are some? Uh, can you tell us a little? Give us some hints as to some of the things you seem to be coming up with. Well, one, people in fragile communities really believe education is the pathway to middle class status. And it's very similar to polling from Ed Next. Many um, poor people, independent of color, 
say they simply do not live in a zip code with a great public school and they want access to something better. So that confirms, you know, some of your research. You know, what I found interesting is the racial gap between who believes college matters and who does not. African Americans and Hispanics at a higher level believe it, uh, it matters a great deal for their success. Uh, it does for whites, but less so. We've seen uh, data uh, support that as well, but some of the nuances of that are interesting. When we talk about criminal justice reform... So what's really important is to, to graduate from high school, get into college, if, if you're going to get into the middle class, that's absolutely critical for Hispanic Americans and African Americans. And they see it as a pathway. And they said, and more than 60% in both groups said so. And, you know, if we're talking about Martin Luther King, he had, uh, you know, the advantage of going to Morehouse College uh, as a young man. Age 15. In part. Age 15, yeah. he went to Morehouse College, I think. Is, am I right on that? That's sort of my memory of, of, of what No, he very well, he was 15. And he went in in part because of uh, the Second World War and there was just a number of seats. But, you know, he went to school. He obtained middle-class uh, values and status through this. But on criminal justice reform, you know, that's a tough topic right now. Uh, everything from what happened in Ferguson to Freddie Gray in Baltimore and other cities, police and policing is a really big topic. And so it was good to get data from there. You know, one nugget that uh, I found pretty interesting are which communities, in fact, said they want police involvement. They don't want police not to be involved. They just don't want them involved after something's happened. And so there's a really big push for more early community involvement with police and communities. But the idea that, you know, these communities don't want police simply isn't true. So the communities really want the police to be involved in their community, but they want to, they don't want to see the police pouring in in force after some event takes place. Is that sort of what you're finding? That's what we're finding, and they're giving suggestions as to what the police department can do in early in advance of something to get to know the community, coming to local events, uh, coming to schools. I'll share a perfect example. I happened to grow up, uh, not grow up, but in the summer I visited my grandfather who was a deputy sheriff. And so I had someone in my family who was a member of law enforcement. I remember in elementary school, two police officers coming to our school, invited by the principal, just to have a conversation about what they do. And they may have stayed 30 minutes. And I remember one thing they said was really important. They said, if we stop you because we're, you're speeding, or your mom and dad is speeding, it's not because we're trying to be mean, it's because we're trying to keep everyone safe. And if you see us coming, the first thing to do isn't to get scared, it's to wonder, well, what's going on? Now, that conversation had an impact on me in terms of how I related with police. Now, I, too, have been profiled and have been involved in some of those activities, so it's more than just rhetoric. But I do think the, the findings from people who live in the community will be helpful not only for police departments, but also for social scientists and others who are studying interactions between the police and communities. Well, what are, you know, since we're on the education exchange, I have to ask you this question, Gerard. What are you finding out about people's feelings about the schools? Do they feel that the schools in their community are uh, serving the students, or, or, or what's their suggestions there? Well, preliminary findings indicate that about a third uh, do not. Um, more than half believe it's adequate when 
asked, what would you do to change it? Uh, you would be surprised to know some say more money, uh, some say uh, great teachers. And so it kind of feels and feeds into some of the responses that we expected. We didn't do a deep dive on private school choice as you would do with Education Next. There was uh, information there about charter, but even that was nuanced because, as you well know, you know, you earned your Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. When you think about Chicago today and its public school system, they've had challenges for decades. Had some success here and there, but they have challenges. Even in a city like Chicago with successful charter schools who are actually uh, allowing particularly young black boys to go to places like Morehouse College or to the University of Chicago, that even in Chicago when you say charter school, some people still consider them private schools or they consider them part of a privatization movement to take money away from public education. And so that's still something that's alive and well in the conversation. Now, I want to ask you uh, a question about the uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall College Fund uh, that you're working closely with. Uh, how, do, how are they viewing the... Uh, the historically uh, black college that's uh, finding it uh, uh, a challenge in this day when other colleges and universities are doing a better job of opening their doors to the uh, minority community. Uh, are they, uh, how do they um, grapple with the uh, challenges facing the historic black college? We have a new president, Dr. Harry Williams. He just joined two weeks ago. He is he arrives to us from uh, Delaware State, where he was president. Uh, he is really aware of, of the challenges facing uh, HBCUs. Uh, Thurgood Marshall College Fund represents 47 public HBCUs, so those are the ones we're talking about. Um, Morehouse College, Dr. King's alma mater, is part of the United Negro College Fund. So he's continuing some of the work uh, that HBCU leaders have, have had to do for over 20 years. One is to target uh, students where they are. You know, we often educate more first-generation college students uh, than many institutions, not all, but many. Um, but we still, even with the challenges that we have, we still have a, a pretty good rate of producing, uh, like North Carolina A&T, one of the largest producers of black engineers in the country, you have schools in Louisiana, largest producers of students in STEM education. But let's face it, we also have some schools that have a pretty low six-year graduation rate. And so Dr. Williams and others will work together to figure out how to have more students graduate um, and quicker, uh, faster time than they have. But it's a challenge, and I believe he's one of the leaders up to, to take it to the right level. Well, finally, I'm going to ask you a really tough question because Thurgood Marshall has come up in the conversation here, and uh, he did a tremendous amount to increase equality of opportunity at a time when most people weren't paying any attention to the topic. He fights it through the courts uh, and finally gets uh, the Supreme Court of the United States to hand down Brown v. Board of Education. He's the attorney who brings that case. He's appointed Justice of the Supreme Court by Lyndon Johnson in recognition of the historic accomplishment. Now, 
who is the greatest of all civil rights leaders, Gerard? Is it Martin <laughs> Luther King or is it Thurgood Marshall? Well, in putting me on the spot, uh, I would have to say Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and both of them have equally changed not only civil rights but human rights. And I'd, I'd say Dr. King for three reasons. Number one, he was able to accomplish outside of the legal and political methods something that very few human beings can do, and that's to change how we think about character and culture. You mentioned in your opening a segment from his I Have a Dream speech where he talked about character, and I always read uh, every Martin Luther King birthday a letter that he wrote in 1947, uh, I believe 18 or 19 at the time. It's called A Purpose of Education. And I can tell you, when I was 19 or 18 or 19, I was that remotely thinking about the purpose of education. But he said this, we must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, that's the true goal of education. And he was able to use the pulpit uh, to help influence policy, not only at the federal and state level, but internationally. And today we're still having conversations about him. Some things he said were probably more true than others. And so if, having, if I have to make a decision between the two, uh, I'd say Dr. King, of course, uh, Thurgood Marshall is a close uh, second. But when we think about Dr. King 100 years from now, he really was a prophet in some very interesting ways. Well, I'll have to confess that it's a hard choice, but I can hardly disagree with you. And uh, I thank you very much, uh, Gerard, for joining me on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, or at least the day we uh, celebrate that birthday uh, uh, here in, in 2018. Uh, you know, many years after that great speech was given, even more years since the Brown B. Board of Education decision was handed down, but a time of great change, but. Uh, we hope that even greater change will be accomplished in the uh, 50 years forward that we move from where we are today. So thank you very much, Gerard, for joining me. And let me thank you for the 30-plus years of dedication you've given to higher education, and particularly the scholars that you've produced who are now in positions of power both inside and outside the academy, who are in fact using scholarship to open up the doors of opportunity to more students let me thank you as well. Well, I hope that scholarship is something that you can be uh, putting to use there in your new key position uh, with the uh, Center for Advancing Opportunity at the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. I've been speaking with Gerard Robinson. This is Paul Peterson on the Education Exchange. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you.